0: Hey there. I'm Christopher Dorabeck, the DoraBeck Insider, and welcome to GovLoop's Dorabek Insider, where we focus on six words, helping government do its job better. And we're doing our annual year and looking at what's happened and what that may mean for what might happen uh, 2016, a lot of stuff happening. And joining us to uh, give us some perspective, Dr. David Bray. He is, of course, the Chief Information Officer at the Federal Communications Commission and headed up ELC this year. You had a big uh, server transfer and moved to the cloud. You had a lot of things happening. It it must be hard (laughs) when somebody says, what's the biggest thing that happened in 2016? It's almost hard to find, find, keep it to even like a dozen for you.
1: (laughs) That's very true, and uh, thanks for having me, Chris. And I would say for me, the biggest thing that happened was uh, we no longer have anything on premise at the SEC. We're either 100% public cloud or commercial service provider.
0: So, and, and we've had you on talking about that before, and and now you're you've been doing it for a while. Give us sort of a sense. Of, well, I, I actually want to take the step back and and explain for folks who haven't heard all those other conversations. Why did you do that?
1: Mm -hmm. So I arrived at FCC, I guess now almost about three years ago. It was August of 2013. Uh, They had 207 different systems all on premise. Uh, average age more than 10 years old, and they were consuming more than 85% of our budget just to maintain those systems. And that to me was just not sustainable, that it was just going to continue to grow in terms of cost to maintain. And, you know, short of something that was a rather dramatic leap of faith, so to speak, um, incremental changes on the edges would just not solve the problem. The other thing is, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, I came from the national security intelligence community and I was very concerned about how could legacy systems, um, stand up to the growing threats of cybersecurity. And given that we're – FCC is a small agency, uh, I was looking for what could I do to get sort of economy of scale for what I would call cyber resiliency um, and being able to address both increases in demand from the public to user services, but also if there was a DDoS attack or something like that, um, being on-prem, it's just you, whereas if you go to a public cloud model – it's you plus the partner that is providing that service. And of course they're going to do everything they can to keep it as up as much as possible.
0: Any, any, re, uh, Do you have any tangible lessons learned to, to, that you take from that as somebody else is hearing this and saying, okay, we know we need to do this. We have all this legacy uh, stuff. I'll use the polite word that we, mm-hmm. we need to not do. <laughs> um, and, and here's somebody who's done it. What, what lessons do you take away?
1: So first and foremost, uh, open up the conversation to as many people as possible in your organization get their input as to what I did in my first month was put big posters that said what's our strengths, what's our weaknesses what's our opportunities and what's our threats and said anybody can come by and write on what they think it is and then we'll have an open discussion later and so after 30 days we all got together and I actually just led the discussion through, I can ask questions, I couldn't impose my own view but I really wanted to understand what they thought our strengths, weaknesses and opportunities and threats were and from that then a week later I circled back and I actually briefed the chairman of the FCC. He had just come on board and sort of said, look, here's where we're at and almost make a business case as to why, why doing the status quo is riskier and more dangerous than trying to step outside of expectations. Because I do agree for a lot of people in public service, I mean, we know there's no real rewards for doing something different. There's all the punishments in the world for doing something different and not having it work. And guess what? I mean, there's always going to be things that you're going to have to pivot and adjust. But By making it as open and inclusive as you can to people and then going to your top leadership and making the business case, you know, lay out the figures like I just did about like this is just not sustainable and it's consuming so much money and it's slowing us down and it's going to make us vulnerable to, you know, different things like that. That will help. And it also
0: gets you into a a cycle of downward spiral where you can't, you can't do more innovative things because you don't have a platform to do it. It just becomes, it becomes worse and worse, Right.
1: So it becomes worse and worse because you're now, you're now so focused on trying to maintain the thing that you have. Like you said, you can't do anything innovative as it was in the past. When I arrived here, it would take us six or seven months to do a new system, which I imagine a lot of people are like, well, that's not bad. Actually now that we're in a public cloud model, you can give us a new requirement set of systems and we can have a working prototype in less than 48 hours. And that's only possible when you go to public cloud versus trying to do everything by yourself. And I realize for a lot of people, that's scary because they feel like they're losing control. Um, they're now dependent on other partners. Also, incumbent contractors, let's face incumbent contractors who you've gotten to trust will not be needed as much. And so in some respects, you're going to have to make new relationships. And that can hold people back from making that leap to the new that, that you need to do just because the world is changing so fast.
0: Yeah. Is there something that if you had to do it over again, you would do it differently?
1: Um, I I enjoyed the ride as I mean definitely we pivoted and and did lots of things along the way that you know you set the vision but uh, I I actually I don't know if there would be anything I would do differently I think I would just say uh, for anyone who's thinking about doing it find as many other people to help point out your blind spots and involve them in part of the team because you're always going to have blind spots I mean there's a wonderful Harvard business article that talks about in praise of incomplete leadership. You know, don't assume you have all the answers. Go in being humble, saying and asking everyone in your team. So how are we going to do this? Or what are your thoughts about how we can do this? And then, yes, you as a leader, you have to put the stake in the ground and say, okay, we're going to take this path. Um, But, you know, recognize that that leadership as well as uh, being a change agent is actually a team sport versus a solo sport.
0: Right. And and change becomes much more. Uh, accessible if if other people are involved, it's, if it's not just t- marching to somebody else's orders, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: the other big thing that you did was uh, lead the Executive Leadership Conference. This is a big conference that's held every year down in Williamsburg, uh, part of the uh, ACT-IAC team. Um, and, and you really went in there. Uh, this is a, a conference that's been going on for nearly 30 years, for goodness sakes, 25 years, I guess. Um, and you really wanted to change it up. and. Um, which sometimes can be almost harder. Everyone thinks the government has has all the culture issues, but uh, outside organizations do as well, don't they?
1: Uh, yes, I do. And I have to say, actually, it was refreshing because, um, yeah, actually it made some of the change we were trying at the FCC look simple by comparison. But thanks to a tremendous amount of change agents, uh, both on the planning committee with ELC and the executive uh, with ACTIAC, but also a lot of people who volunteered. Um, you know, I think I did the same thing I did at FCC with ELC, which was, you know, let's first open up to what we want to do differently. And what we heard from people was they want it shorter tighter talks. They wanted some sort of element in which what they did would lead to something beyond just ELC. So we actually have it so that the winners of the shark tanks will actually brief the next administration in February or March. Um, and So that way it actually has some links to it. And then also just allowing for a discussion about different generational perspectives. And so once we had that sort of feedback as to what the vision was, then it was sort of like how I did the FCC was here's the vision, here's the boundary conditions as to how specifically we're going to get from A to B to C to D. That's open to the individual change agents. If you see something that's going to be a good idea, pitch it, and we'll invest in you. And so I think the good news is, um, by all accounts, it was a dramatically different EOC than the past. Um, for most cases, experiments, and I want to use the word experiment because they were, most of the experiments worked. Um, and so hopefully that will serve as a um, almost sort of like a signpost for the next time they do the executive leadership conference to consider what other types of experiments they want to do with the conference format for next year.
0: Yeah. it's it, this, this is a conference, in, and as somebody who does a lot of conferences and, and does a lot of events, I think these are very important and is writing a book about how to moderate, for goodness sakes. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think these are important important places because it gets you talking to people outside your, people you don't talk to every day. So it's, it's really that uh, almost uh, fertilizer for your brain, right? It gets you, gets you thinking in ways and gets you excited about uh, uh, the possibilities of what can happen. And, uh, and that's why I've always thought these were important. But I know these take a lot of time, having worked on ELC for a number of years. Why did you decide that this was worth your time, energy, effort?
1: Um, so yeah, I have to admit when they first came and circled to me, I was like, "Wow, I'm kind of really busy at the FCC." Right. But, <laughs> I have a day job, <laughs> and, and and of course I, I think my wife is probably looking at her watch, saying, "At what time is David going to come home today?" But <laughs> um, but I think it, it. So when they came back a second time and made the offer again, I said, "Okay, well, I would only be willing to." Uh, chair the executive leadership conference of one, if I knew who my industry partner was. And so it ended up being Teresa Bozzelli, who was a terrific um, sort of co-partner, co-conspirator to help drive change. But then two, I said I would only do it if they promised that 50% or more of the speakers we invited were women, uh, 25% or more were individuals from, out, from outside the DC area, and 25% or more were Gen X and Gen Y. And they said yes, and so sometimes, and I, I'm reminded of I had a great mentor who, back in 1998, um, I had I had I had become a little disillusioned with trying to drive change back in 1998, and that's a story. If we want to dive into it, we can. It was in South Africa and reporting on HIV/AIDS. But um, he said, "Remember, you can always drive and create more change as an insider than you can as an outsider." So I was like, "Okay, I've been handed this chance to chair ELC." You know, one, I think, like you said, there needs to be more diversity in the views being shared. So we're not just seeing the same people we'd happen to see here in D.C. because guess what? We can do that on a daily basis. We want to. I want to have new views. And then, two, um, I mean, I really think, I mean, we are living in a period of exponential change in which there's at least four, if not five different generations in the workforce. All of their different views have merit. And what we really need to do is actually address that conversation. So we don't just say, "Well, millennials are the best thing since sliced bread," which you know they have some merits. But there's also to recognize the boomers have perspectives, the lost generation has perspectives, uh, Gen X and Gen Z. And so, it was a chance, I think, to try and give things forward uh, for the conversations that need to happen. And the good news is, uh, looking back, one we were at a record, uh, near record for the past uh, few years in terms of um, sign-ups for ELC, and more than 25% of the attendees it was their first time ever attending the conference. Oh, wow. Awesome.
0: Um, and, and I and I and I heard a lot of good stuff coming out of it. Just trying different things and, and and yet doing it in a way that people felt comfortable that they knew what was going on. And sometimes that can be the hardest thing is communicating what the changes are, so you all can keep going in the same direction, right?
1: Yes. Oh, and like all things, um, I'm a big believer of. Tell people about the changes that are coming, tell them again, and then remind them of the changes you're doing. But even then, um, especially if, like you said, the conference has been going on for 25, almost 30 years, there was a rhythm that people were used to that we were very intentionally stepping out of. Um, However, as as you know and I know that I've said is that part of leadership is stepping outside of expectations and then managing the friction that comes as a result of it. And so this was – calculated a bit on our part, which was some of the things that we really wanted to do that were so far out there were like, yeah, we probably couldn't do that for this first year. But we we thought that the experiments we were running that they would be different enough, but close enough that people would still be able to see some sort of semblance to what they were doing. And and like all things, I'm willing to take the friction or take the hit hits and be that human flak jacket for someone that says, well, that was different than what we did last year and I want to go back to the way we did last year. And that's okay. They're entitled to that opinion. And that type of feedback I think overall, we'll make better conferences. And, and, and again, the whole point of the conferences is not the conference itself, in my opinion. It's about, like you said, the diversity of ideas because there is no textbook for where we're going with public service. I mean, mm. I mean, cloud, in my opinion, is just the appetizer. And now really is about how are we going to use AI to help make public service deliver services um, faster, more timely, um more fair in some cases, too. If you know what the algorithm is doing and that algorithm is transparent, um, it can be more fair to people. Um, same thing with the Internet of Things, this is a double-edged sword. It's, it's an increased attack surface for cyber events, but it also could help us provide um, better services as it relates to transportation quality or um, local community health um, or better decision making. And so, since there is no textbook and no one person is going to have all the answers, we have to have these conversations that lead to action and that's what i really want to see is what are we going to do differently in 2017
0: and as we do pivot towards 2017 uh certainly uh, it, we're, I, I feel like we're continuing a theme of change and certainly uh, people may have heard that there was an election that went on and at least <laughs> one of my big me- uh, one of the big messages that came out well i guess bringing like a a big you know 20 foot sign was people want change and and as a person who follows government very closely That has to ring true to you, too, I would imagine.
1: Yes, and I think, uh, again, I'm nonpartisan, but I would say as a senior executive that that my takeaway is clearly there is a desire for change. I think then the question is there's probably a need for us in public service to dive a little bit deeper as to what that is specifically. Um, I think from what I was hearing, and in fact, I heard it even before – I'm actually – I'm not as surprised with the outcome as some people are in some respects because being on social media, I mean, I came to the FCC three years ago and about a month in wanted to create a social media account really, to be honest, to listen and learn Um, and, and that I actually monitor my own account on my own. It's not delegated to somebody because I want to hear what conversations are going on. And what I heard over the last three years, to be honest, was just a general frustration building up with stress and in some cases anger about The rate of technology change is making some people wonder about the American dream disappearing, that, you know, is it the case that you can have the same job for the next 40 years? Well, that may be changing. And so I think we need to figure out what's our social obligation to help people retrain for the jobs that are that are of the now as opposed to jobs of the past. And then also about uh, education, that that a college degree or a high school degree is not going to be sufficient for life. You're going to have to do retraining along the way. And then finally, um, I mean, the the reality is since 2001, more than 50% of the companies that were on the S&P 500 are no longer listed because they either went bankrupt or they fell off the list or for other reasons. And so, you know, not only is... The promise of having a job the same job for life disappearing or that education in your youth is sufficient for life But then organizations are coming and going at a faster clip, too And I think that's creating just a sort of question about, you know, where are we going as a nation? And where are we going as a world?
0: So as you uh, Sit there at the FCC what you, you've done a bit your big server. Does this just allow you to do many more? Uh, allows you to think of the world in a whole different way as you look into the year ahead.
1: Yes, in fact, uh Uh, One of the additional reasons why we made the jump to public service, uh, sorry, public cloud and to uh, commercial service provider is really thinking about, I mean, I'll be honest, I think the future is thinking about public service as a triangle in which the public's at the top, obviously because they're receiving the services, private sector partners are an important leg of the triangle as are government professionals, but that You know, if I want to be controversial, I'll say that the word government was a 20th century term that is increasingly out of date. What we really want to talk about is public service in which the public can receive services, but if they want, they can also provide inputs and feedbacks that help with the delivery of public services better. Uh, We also need to look at the private sector. There's a lot of things now that in the past – private sector couldn't do, but now because packet latency between New York and DC is not three days, but is now milliseconds on the internet, we could actually have some of those things done. I mean, when we fought World War II, it's not like government stood up and said, you know what, we're going to build all the planes and the aircraft carriers by ourselves. I mean, that would have been silly. And I think in the past, there were a lot of homegrown legacy systems that we did because that was the state of the art in the 80s and the 90s. I don't think that's the case now. And I actually one of the things that I've been raising as a question that I think is how much of what we do in public service, quite frankly, can reuse commercial cloud services so we're not in the business of writing custom code because guess what? That's not our skill set. We really should save writing custom code as a last resort.
0: And and it feels like uh, I mean as the the HRs the, the people you have to work with over the coming years is going to evolve I think a lot you know as people just finally decide to retire the tsunami may finally be happening and we saw some numbers that reflect that in 2016 uh, the, the how you do work is also feels like it's changing and evolving.
1: Oh yes, and in fact I would well, I would love to run a pilot or experiment in which we stop hiring people for a specific government agency and instead hire them for their skill sets, and then almost like they almost operate like a consultancy model where they have to have billable hours across different departments and agencies, and maybe initially they're 100% at one to get their feet wet. But if you're really good at, say, helping, um, helping create public-facing services regarding, I don't know, um, better delivery of services as it relates to transportation. That might be great for the Department of Transportation, but I imagine there are other other parts of the public service that we do where that same skill set could be used, and so why can't you float across it as opposed to, well, okay, you've now done your job here, now you've got to Twitter your thumbs and maybe apply for a USA job process and maybe six or nine months later take another assignment. So doing things like that, I'd also like to see, quite frankly, I mean – we don't actually have a map of what the different workers in public service are doing. So what if we actually did a very quick survey that said, this is optional. You don't have to respond if you don't want to, but just give us the top five things you did in the last month and give us the .gov email addresses of the people you worked on doing it. Optional again, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Obviously, if you're an undercover DEA agent, don't need to respond. Um, But that If you get even just 10% to respond, you'd get the first network graph of the different activities as reported from the bottoms up across all the public service for a very low lift. And it would be interesting to see where are the gaps, where are the redundancies, where are things that are going on that are similar. And maybe you start doing that on a monthly basis and then eventually a weekly basis and maybe long term. It's not even something where someone has to respond. Almost like the machine knows what you're working on and can actually help make connections and say, look, I see you're working on this following thing. Did you know that somebody else at, I don't know, Department of Treasury is doing something similar? Would you like me to connect you? Um, And again, it's worth noting that, you know, the Department of Defense is 2 million people, including contractors, and the federal workforce is 1.2 million. We are the largest organizations. um, And in terms of how to fund it, uh, the the most depressing statistic is I've heard that just human resources IT, HR IT alone at the Department of Defense, it's $11.5 billion a year. I'm pretty sure we can get some efficiencies and some better services through that that could help make how we use our workforce smarter and better. In fact, what came out of the Executive Leadership Conference in terms of the six winners um, from the co-creation track, uh, five out of the six were all workforce-related, and some of them were similar to these ideas that I'm sharing here, that it, it is clear that people are hungry for having a smarter more connected, more collaborative workforce that is not hierarchy-based in public service, but is much more network-based.
0: Mm-hmm. The um, y- Your example of moving to the cloud was a way of dealing with the modernization issue, and we've heard the federal CIO, Tony Scott, talk about that a lot um, and, and and has been pushing Congress very hard to get this modernization fund through so to really help agencies get rid of a lot of the bad stuff they have and move to more modern platform. Is... is the FCC model scalable to larger agencies?
1: I think so. I think uh, with larger agencies, you, I mean, the same model we did, which was identify first a few cases where you can show to your leadership, you can show to your enterprise that this is possible. That's, that, I think, is textbook to anybody. Uh, and then in terms of where we made the dramatic Operation Server Lift, that might be a little bit harder if you're a very large agency like Department of Defense. But if you actually break it down to individual components or services, you could have each one of them running on a different timetable. Uh, and I think that would be useful. The other thing is that so we haven't seen we hadn't seen a budget increase for the last six years when we made the operation server lift. And so in a perfect world what you would have done is you would have stood up at the commercial facility, verified that everything was running, and then made the cutoff. But we knew that So on a flat budget, we just didn't have the funds to do it, and so we instead had to do the equivalent of a Hail Mary pass, which was uh, move those things we could to the cloud, uh, retire those systems that, quite frankly, were too old to move, like we retired two Sun E25K servers that were one ton each, and then for remainder of things that that needed to go to the commercial facility that, quite frankly, we didn't have the funds to buy – we actually literally cut off the servers on Labor Day and loaded up seven trucks and moved them to the commercial facility. Clearly, Department of Defense, ideally you'd be able to make the case to Congress and maybe Tony Scott, as he is making for this fund, um, that you could actually, instead of doing the Hail Mary pass that we did, you could actually have things standing up there already. That would be a better approach. However, I do definitely think it's infinitely doable. And then the other thing that we've done that I think is a good model is – in the last 18 months, we've procured more than 14 different cloud services, and that's not the case with most agencies. In um, then I asked people to raise their hand, and less than probably 40%, so they even had procured one cloud service in the last year. I really think GSA, if they wanted to have huge value, would be to have an a la carte um, listing of cloud services that we can either consume by the seat or by consumption base things like, um, you know, office productivity or data collection or data visualization or user authentication. And, you know, not just one product, because we don't give anyone a monopoly, but actually two or three, but have them be not only defined that you can get them from this vendor, but also get them in a, in a, dare I say it, a FedRAMP like standard. So, you know, it's secure, but it's also interoperable. And then all we have to do is we have to pay money towards it. So that my procurement shop, compared to all the other procurement shops that there must be 200 different procurement shops across government, we don't have to do everything by ourselves. And I think that would be, dare I say, that would be huge for how public service could move forward with speed is if we reduce the friction required to get to commercial services that are software as a service or platform as a service.
0: Let me close out asking you, and, and I generally don't like asking people to make predictions because I feel mm-hmm. like we put we sometimes spend so much time looking forward that we don't spend time where we are and and enjoy the moment and and focus on the important things happening around us. We're so focused on on what's coming <laughs> ahead. That being said, we're talking. We're at the end of the year. What's your? What do you imagine we'll be talking about when you and I have this conversation a year from now? What will What will we be talking about? Um,
1: and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, what is it? Scott Adams says that if there's two ways to predict the future, one is Ouija boards, the other one is feeding facts on the machine. Either <laughs> ways are a complete waste of time. Exactly. Um, but I will try. I here's what I would hope we would be talking about a year from now, which is that we identified a different way of doing cyber resiliency that is not just every agency for itself, trying to buy more equipment, trying to buy more hardware and software and vendor services and essentially operating like castles and modes. I hope that by that time we've had a conversation and maybe it's, maybe it's a shared service for cyber, for the small agencies um, that's provided by a commercial provider. Um, maybe it's um, recognizing that it is about resiliency, that nobody would raise their hand and say, I'm never going to get sick again. Um, you know, that would be silly to say in the real world. Similarly, You know, we should accept that it's not that you can ever have 100 percent security if you're connected to the Internet. But what you can do is through a combination of software, hardware, um, vaccines, prophylaxis of the equivalent on the cyber side, we can make it so that we can rapidly detect something's odd with the health of a device, um, quarantine it, minimize the dwell time of whatever infection is going on and then move on. I think we need to actually start thinking about the Internet of things being much like cyber public health. And that's going to require a different approach than what we've been doing, which quite frankly is, you know, we've been trying to do a defensive perimeter, but the reality is on the internet, and especially with the internet of everything, your defensive perimeter is basically exposed to everything and everywhere. And so I hope we'd be having that conversation. I'd also like us to have the conversation, and maybe next year is a little too ambitious, but of safe places to do experiments where we are trying to hire the workforce differently that they're operating a network approach versus hierarchical approach that we're beginning to use ai to take some of the rote rule-based things that we do in public service i mean a lot of what we do is repetitive rote involves a lot of people because you don't want any one person to be too biased in the process but in my mind that's perfect for actually using machine learning and artificial intelligence because it is rote and rule-based and you can make the algorithm public so that people can actually verify that it is actually following the process consistently And so where are the safe spaces to do that? It's not going to be individual agencies because usually they're too busy trying to accomplish the mission. You don't want to move it too far from the mission because then it gets abstract. But we almost need to have an incubator, an incubator of sorts that's almost in situ with the agencies on the front line, trying to bring things like AI, the Internet of Things, um, new approaches to encryption that do privacy and security at the same time in situ with them, because um, we, we have a mandate, like you said, for change and deliver results differently and better to the public.
0: Well, and I'm glad you brought up AI because I, I'm seeing more discussion about it and even in government spaces, more people at least thinking about what it means for government. And it seems like something that, um, that it, it, it seems like an area that we need to really keep our eye on, Right.
1: Oh, definitely. And in fact, uh, uh, I would say in some respects, AI is the new cloud, uh, which is both good and bad. It's it's both on the Gartner-Hype curve. But at other times, there's definitely 20% or more substance there. And I mean, if you look at it, California is right now using an AI to help make bail decisions. You feed in the facts of the case, and it actually decides and sets your bail. And in some respects, that's more fair because it's not taking into account things that don't matter to the case, like your height or your weight, your race or your gender. And so similarly, So much what we do in terms of applications for things, in terms of maybe a license to get approved or something like that. Um, Now, the challenge is it's going to put people out of jobs that are in government. And so we'd have to manage that. Do we retrain them or do we actually help give them an early buyout, reduction in force, whatever? But I think a whole lot of what we do in public service, because it is rote and rule-based, would be great to show that you can actually deliver results more effectively to the public, through machine learning and AI, and at the same time, be more fair and faster in the process of doing it too.
0: David Bray, the uh, f- uh, chief information, I almost forgot your title, chief information <laughs> officer at the Federal Communications Commission, Dr. David You can just Bray. say I'm a human
1: flag jacket. That's there, all I am, just a human flag jacket. <laughs> uh, one of the real thought leaders, and
0: always a pleasure uh, to have you on this program. Thank you very much for doing it.